Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Love Grove on Health. My name is Dominic Lukes. I'm the product marketing manager here at Skills for Health. And joining me as always is Andrew Lovegrove, who's Skills for Health senior consultant. How are you, Andrew? Hi there, Dom. Really great to be with you again. Um, doing well as we're recording today. The sun's shining, the clocks go forward soon. So, um, feels as though spring is beginning to spring fantastic yeah it's great to be here again i think we're going to go back to our normal style episode so we'll cover off a few of the news stories and then we're going to look at a a particular issue that's impacting the health sector and the focus for today is widening participation obviously this is a, a huge talking point very doubtful we're going to get all the issues covered in today's recording so this might be a a special one of so many but yeah the feedback again with the podcast is great i'm keeping an eye on the stats and they all seem really healthy so it's great that people are actually sort of appreciating the the effort that we're putting into this doesn't it absolutely and i think it's quite enjoyable to listen to somebody else speak about things that actually resonate and matter with them and to them. And I'm sure there are people who listen who don't agree with every word that I say, maybe have a completely different point of view. But I think sometimes just hearing someone's point of view, it stimulates debate within oneself and also within your role within your organisation. And my experience is discussion debate are just really healthy things to have, both in terms of keeping ourselves centred and grounded but actually improving things, making the whole work experience uh, better for everybody. Yeah. Well, as long as we get more fan mail than hate mail, <laughs> that's the... <laughs> Absolutely. I'll let you weed that out. I'll <laughs> let you weed that out for me, Dom. <laughs> okay. So we'll quickly look at some of the news stories that's sort of made the headlines in the in the last week or so. And one that came sort of to both our um, attention was this news story about discrimination in the nhs i'm just wondering if this is a topic you might like to just expand upon briefly well yes i think it's a story i came across uh, initially through twitter and it was one of those stories where sometimes twitter doesn't always give you a, a um a wholly honest collection of, of of stories and and news. It was the example of somebody putting a notice up in uh, an area of a hospital, saying essentially, you know, English is the only language that should be spoken, both in patient and non-patient facing areas, and failure to do so would lead to uh, disciplinary action. And the reason why I, when I first saw this thing pop up on my Twitter and I thought, is this actually real? Is because when I looked at the the actual photograph of the notice, it almost was written, almost even like the font that they'd used within the other piece of paper was from a time years ago. I almost felt when I read it, it was something somebody had produced 20 years ago that they'd resurfaced and and then tweeted on uh, on Twitter because it, it felt so not of its time. But then as the days go, go by, actually, no, this is a real story and it is you know, very much relevant to today. 
And, you know, I'm not going to get into the whys and wherefores of, you know, English language proficiency. You know, I think take it for given that when working with patients, a certain proficiency of English is, you know, to be expected and, and indeed is required. But people talking, people from different communities, different backgrounds, being able to speak in a language that is actually more conducive to them. I just felt providing it's not harming anybody, I couldn't see why somebody wouldn't feel the need to put such a, a really unhelpful, I mean, you know, even if, let's just say for the moment that that opinion was correct, that point of view was correct, don't communicate it via a notice that you stick up on a wall or a notice board. You would actually want to speak to somebody about that and actually understand, because there may be a very good reason. It just felt, I don't know, it just felt, it said more about that individual's kind of leadership style and their values and behaviours. Jarring is the word that I would use to describe it when I when I saw that news story, Dom. I don't know what your thoughts were. Well, I was just going to say, have you been following this story? Have they retracted on this position at all, or is, are they still continuing? Do you know? I've not been able to follow the thread of it. So I, I keep trying to, and, and, and the organisation, I think, in question is, is sort of pulled back uh, a, a little bit, and they're saying they're going to review their speak English rule. Um, and I think that announcement came via NHS uh, England. So it was interesting that that, I mean, that came out via another organisation rather than the the, the organisation itself. Because I think one of the reasons it gave for putting up that poster was they'd cited their organisational trust values that said something like, I will only communicate English in the presence of others. But it probably says more about are their values aligned to where they should be for today? Like, you know, let's just say even if that the notice, the message that notice was communicating was correct. Don't put a notice up, you know, like that as a way of dealing with that situation. I think that's my takeaway from that, Dom. Yeah. Another news story that we sort of both selected was there was some stats that came out, wasn't there, about um, allowing staff enough rest time. And Acutra said that this was absolutely key in terms of driving down waiting lists and numbers. I'm just wondering, again, it's quite difficult in, in, in the time that we have, but do you think this is actually an issue that not enough trusts are actually prioritising, do you think, in terms of allowing staff enough downtime? I recognise you know, the unprecedented demands that we're under at the moment and the need for services to deliver care and uh, attention to people. But fundamentally... Look after your workforce and your workforce will look after patients and citizens. And I think we all need proper rest. I no longer work in clinical practice, but I know days where I've had a good night's sleep and I know days when I haven't. So I think an organisation actually recognising, ensuring people's rotors allow for sufficient downtime isn't just being a good employer, although I think it will make that organisation more attractive for potential recruits, but actually they'd worked out it's in their own best interest because those people will be more productive. They will 
almost certainly lead to better outcomes for patients because better decision making will be made. I mean, you know, I use the example of you try and make a decision after you've spent, you know, 23 hours flying, you know, your mind is complete, you know, in a complete garbage. So it just stands to reason, look after your workforce, let them have that downtime. It's not a nice to have, it's an absolute must because it's in your, it's in your own interests as an organisation to look after the people who look after others. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. And I know on the last podcast, we were going to kind of wrap up COVID because ever since we've been starting starting these episodes, it feels like it's always been one of the sort of new stories that we can't avoid. But um, obviously, the latest numbers are out. China's looking like it's going to go back into lockdown. Record numbers, hospital admissions in Scotland trends looking like it's heading that way in england as well just feels amiss if we just don't talk about it briefly well absolutely absences i saw a stat uh from last week there'd been a 20 percent rise in covid related absences in the preceding 10 days that's going to have huge implications you know a for the people who are off from work they are those contributing to the overall covid numbers but thinking about the services trying to provide care to people they're going to be diminished we're going to see you know there's more more covid related emissions put pressure the government seem to be saying well we've got the firewall of vaccines and the vaccines you know fingers crossed still seem to be holding out but that doesn't mean to say we're not putting pressure this side of the firewall. And I think I said in an earlier podcast, yeah, I was concerned that we may be opening the gates a little bit too quickly. Some of that seems to be born true. The firewall is still holding, but I think you know you're right to point towards china dom it certainly isn't going away i know there are other news stories at the moment that are top of the agenda but please don't think that covid has gone away because it absolutely hasn't i know scotland they're extending their compulsory mask wearing aren't they in public spaces until april yeah april or may i think before i think they'll review in april and then in may that's when they're looking to remove them but i think they're taking a much more sort of a, a, a rolling brief position that that they will they will react to the data in terms of their approach yeah it's, it feels like with the uk we've kind of made our bed haven't we and i think like you said that the, the faith seems to be in vaccination programs so obviously i think the spring boosters come begin being rolled out again isn't it it is uh, i'll have family members who Hopefully next week we'll be invited for their spring booster, which that that's great. But it's it's that seesaw of living a normal life, whatever normal means, uh, versus dealing with COVID, and it's it's a finely balanced uh, seesaw. Uh, doesn't take much to tip it one way or the other. No, I suppose one concern will be once free testing comes to an end, and just then it sort of becomes quite underground, doesn't it? In terms of knowing whether you've actually got COVID or not. 
Yeah, the 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 cynic in me thinks that once free testing isn't available, people will not be doing as many tests, so therefore there'll be a, a reduction in the numbers. But I'm sure there will be people listening to this who will would say, "Oh, you cynic, Andrew! How could you? How could you take such a view?" Yeah. Okay, that's a nice little recap of some of the news stories that's um, caught our attention in the in, in the last couple of weeks or so. So to bring us on to the sort of main focus for today's podcast, this is talking about widening participation in the NHS. So how to make it a more attractive place for people who want to work in the NHS. So my first question to you is, what do you believe to be the key obstacles today in attracting a health sector workforce that is able to meet the current and future demands on healthcare services? Wow, quite a lot to unpack there, Dom. So in preparation for today, I've kind of sort of sketched out um, a few areas and we'll, we'll, we'll try and cover some of those off. And I think just to say, we are not saying this podcast is going to deal with widening participation today. I think it's a multifaceted topic area that we can come back to. But I think to answer your question in the first instance, for me... One of the real obstacles to attracting people to come and work within the NHS and the health sector more generally is visibility. I think because we are those who work in the health sector and know and understand it, there is that kind of implied knowledge and understanding that we sometimes think everybody else has. Well, of course, people must understand how hospitals primary care, community care settings operate. And my experience tells me that largely they don't. And this is reinforced at many different stages of of, of, of development and, and, and age. I mean, I'm uh, in, in, in a previous role, I used to be invited to go into schools to talk to school leavers about careers in the health sector and would often ask them, so what do you think a career in health is? And do you know what they uh, used to, by and large, say to me, Dom? They'd say, oh, that means becoming a doctor, becoming a nurse, and then uh, a silence. And then somebody would say, well, uh, a midwife, uh, a physiotherapist. And then people really were um, kind of scratching their heads and, you know, I say this as a as a as somebody who comes from a nursing background themselves that those four roles I've just uh, professions I've just articulated are absolutely fundamental cornerstones of the health sector but they certainly don't represent the totality of the healthcare workforce well I can back and that up you've got you've got children Dom haven't you yeah little ones um but I've got a niece and a nephew so this isn't totally off the cuff, our podcast. We do a little bit of research beforehand and I was sent with some homework to ask my niece and nephew who are sort of 15, 16 to try and get a bit of understanding what they thought about working in the NHS would entail. And you're absolutely right. I asked asked my niece Ellie and she said doctors and a midwife. My nephew, Harry, was doctors and nurses. So you're absolutely right. It just seems to be that lack of understanding in terms of the variety of roles and opportunities that are available within the sort of younger population yeah and then that perpetuates itself 
you know, across the age range. I mean, you think whenever on the news, usually when a politician's standing up talking about the NHS and the workforce, they always talk about it in terms of doctors and nurses. We're training X thousand more nurses, X thousand more doctors. I'm the first to applaud that we're training more and more people. But that does not represent the sum total of what the healthcare workforce is. So I think one of the answers to your question is the visibility of what a career in the health sector is. And then if you take that particular thread down to another level, how do you become a doctor, a nurse, a midwife, a physio? Well, the traditional, whatever that means, the, you know, the traditional route to training essentially relied on school leavers leaving with A-levels of sufficient grade and subject area who would then go off and undertake pre-registration training of anything between three, five plus years to become those registered professionals. And, you know, what happens if you don't have those A-level grades? You know, the, the, the messages you receive in school is, well, you know, you've not you've not met the grade, therefore those career options are not open to you where I can say categorically that that's not the case, but I don't believe that is fully known and understood. So there's the issue of there are more career options than uh, the ones that your typical 15, 16 year old knows about and the routes into those other roles and the roles that they do know about are not as limited as is generally I believe to be the case. So for me, those are some major obstacles to begin with. But is the NHS unique in this? You're thinking about the, the police uplift programme at the moment and the 20,000 extra policemen. Do you think there's other public services that also struggle with that sort of frontline visibility in terms of the roles? I think the NHS struggles with it more because of the size of the NHS. And I think the the number of roles that you have within the NHS, I think other, not all, but, uh, but I think there are other public sector bodies that would struggle to compete in terms of the variety of posts and roles that you would have. So that kind of compounds the problem yeah. for uh, the NHS. But I absolutely agree, it's not exclusive no. to the NHS. I think police local government, social care have, you know, similar. Yeah, I suppose what I'm saying is these problems are not unique to the NHS, but the NHS probably feels it more so. Do you think one of the other issues is, I'm just trying to think back when I was that age, I always felt like you had to be kind of well-to-do if you ever wanted to study medicine or to get into like a sort of front role. Do you think that there's still that stigma I think there's the, I mean, the short answer is yes, probably. Um, the long answer is getting into university requires certain things to have happened in your life leading up to that point. And if you've not had 
certain opportunities afforded to you. I remember, you know, as part of my application process uh, for, for my nurse training, I had to go and do an interview and I had to do a presentation, about 10 minutes. Funnily enough, I can still remember the topic that I talked about, um, and that isn't that telling, and answer, uh, do a 15, 20-minute Q&A with a couple of uh, the university uh, lecturers. Now, because I stayed on at school and into my sixth form, in sixth form, we had interview coaching offered to, you know, we were, we were given interview coaching. So I was prepared. The interview coaching didn't deal with the specifics of the, the nursing questions that I was going to be asked. But the idea of walking into a room and having other people asking me questions that required me to answer and the quality of my answers would determine my outcome. I'd had some experience of that. So if I comparing myself to somebody who had not had that opportunity afforded to them, I'm already at an advantage or they are at a disadvantage, depending on which way you want to look at it. So, you know, there's, you know, that's just one example. There's, there's, there's overt and covert things that, that prevent us from, you know, seeing those opportunities that, you know, for example, a career in one of the health professions has opened to, to individuals. But I think as well, there are other ways in, which I know we'll come on to, and there are ways to grow and uh, and have a successful career in the health service, you know, that isn't predicated on you leaving school with three three good A-levels at 18. And, you know, you do a traditional pre-registration three-plus-year degree programme. It's just quite a commitment, isn't it? The actual programme is, what is it, five years, seven years? Well, so you're talking a minimum for nurse, nurse and midwifery training of three years, medicine, you're talking, you know, five, you know, minimum five years plus many more years after that. Um, now, I was very, very lucky when I applied to do my nurse training. Um, not only were my tuition fees paid for me, but I also received a non-means tested bursary. It wasn't mega bucks, but, you know, it paid the rent of where I lived those were the days where there was a nurse's home that I could live in and it paid a peppercorn rent, frankly. I could eat in the hospital that in those days had a subsidised canteen. So I knew that to do my nurse training, whilst I was taking a, a commitment on in terms of my time and a commitment of my dedication, I didn't have to worry about A, how to pay for it, and B, how I was going to sustain myself when I was on the course. You know, I come from a very humble background. I was the first member of my family ever to go to university. So I know my parents would have been really worried about me taking on debt. And in fact, a couple of years ago, I asked my father, we were having a, I think it was one Christmas time, we were having a uh, a, a, a drink. Uh, and I asked him, I said, if I was coming to you now at 18, saying I wanted to go to university, and to do so, I was going to have to take on huge amounts of debt, how would you react to that? And my father said, I'd do everything I could to talk you out of it. Wow. Because in my mind, debt is bad. Mm. You do not get into debt. Debt is something that you don't, apart from a mortgage, perhaps, debt is something to be avoided at all cost. Mm. 
well, that would be, you know, I would have, as an as a 40 something now, I would have had a fairly robust response. But as an 18 year old, I would have probably have listened quite a lot Absolutely. to that. So whether I would have ignored it or, or not, who's to say, but it would have changed my my perception about what my opportunities and my life chances could be through that, like I say, that very traditional way of training to become a nurse. Yeah, that was fascinating. That was brilliant. Any other particular issues then? So social mobility, how much of a factor do you think that is? Well, I think we've just touched on that. I think social mobility doesn't happen on its own. You have to create the environment in which it can nurture and flourish. Now, to be fair, I'm a big supporter and a big advocate of apprenticeships. Now, I know that sometimes that word said and people react positively or negatively. I think when thought of properly and utilised effectively, apprenticeships are a great way, A, of creating great opportunities for individuals, but for us as organisations, how we can grow and sustain a really good workforce supply for the future. I have worked on a framework that, depending on when we release this podcast, it may have either happened or is about to happen. But we have developed a career and capability framework for primary care nursing and general practice nursing. And what that framework shows that there's nothing to stop somebody coming into work in that space at an entry level position to start off as a support worker and could one day find themselves being a nurse consultant or anything in between those two ends of the spectrum. And I think apprenticeships are a great way of facilitating that development for individuals why shouldn't our healthcare assistant of today be the nurse associate or the registered nurse of two or three years time? You know, they've shown their ability as a good healthcare assistant. So it's not for everybody, but there are those who uh, have the desire, the, the wish, and also the ability to progress further through that kind of that career framework trajectory and apprenticeships are a great way of supporting those people as well as supporting the service area and that professional group. However, I've seen bad examples of apprenticeships where people haven't thought through the implications of going down the apprenticeship route, both for the individual apprentice, but also the service. I mean, we could do a whole podcast on how to approach apprenticeships, Dom, and we may do that at some point in the future. But as a as an overall top tip, you have to have a plan in place for apprentices in the workforce. But it's a great opportunity, uh, A, to deal with some of the staffing and resource issues that we face, but also creating opportunities to widen participation for people who have not entered initially as, as as registered staff for lots of reasons who can grow and develop but also can see the opportunities that they have to them and i guess it, it allows them to sort of 
cut their teeth in that environment straight away, doesn't it? And um, you know, it, like you said, it, it it might not work out for them, but it, it feels like a a less risky path, I suppose, for for that individual if they perhaps followed an apprenticeship style route. So uh, I had a colleague whose son had just done his A levels, very good at maths, finance, and very much considering going off to university to do an accountancy degree. Now, his mother at the time, who was working for us here at Skills for Health, said, you know, that is an option, but we are also aware that the local NHS trust has got a a finance apprenticeship opportunity going. Is that something to consider as, as an alternative? And they actually went down that road. They still eventually did their degree. They're now a fully qualified, I'm afraid I don't fully understand the accountancy profession, but they have got the same qualifications that they would have had had they gone through the traditional route. But what they also had were many years of actual work experience. You know, okay, they started at a more assistant level, but progress quite quickly through their programme. So actually, when an employer is looking at their CV, they've got people with the same professional qualification. Oh, but we've got somebody here who's got experience of actually working, you know, in a service area. They will have additional knowledge, skill, understanding. Yeah. Mm, I think I might... uh, might lean more towards that individual. So there are genuine opportunities within apprenticeships. They're not a one-size-fits-all. They're not a silver bullet. But I think in terms of how we deal with the widening participation agenda, it's something that we've absolutely have got to look at. I know you're a big fan of watching sort of hospital healthcare dramas on TV. Do, do you think, again, how the industry is portrayed on screen is an impact as well you know you you see the sort of pressure and workloads and do you just think that could have a a role to play in terms of making it an attractive place to work yeah i mean you've got you know you've got the, the the real life uh fly on the wall documentary types and then you've got the fictitious drama types and Let's deal with the drama ones first. Let's deal with, funnily enough, um, my Radio Times uh, has come today in the post for next week's television. And it's the last episode of Holby City, which makes me feel very old because I remember when the first episode started, I was still at university. Mm. And we used to sit, uh, me and some of my student nurse friends, and we used to sit and watch it just to rip it apart because, the, the you know, the, the the expression well that would never happen was used so many times and gosh that show where do i start you know somebody went from staff nurse to director of nursing in one jump i mean i'm all for promotion and advancement but that really took it to extremes <laughs> and then some of the fly on the wall you know all those programs have got an editor an editorial bias and are wanting to show things in a certain way and Yes, emergency departments are full of blood and gore, but that's not only what they're full of. And, you know, you need that you've got a whole 
mixture it's a melting pot of society so the the breadth of skills the type of person that needs to work in in that environment and indeed any healthcare environment needs to we need a broad base of people and personality because that's how we'll have you know a good balance and an effective uh, workforce a little anecdote from from me when i was a staff nurse on the wards and you'd have a patient who unfortunately would have a cardiac arrest whilst i would fulfill my duty i was always happy when somebody else said they wanted to work directly on the patient but i was always more than happy to phone and deal with relatives and would you know sit with them and break bad news you know answer questions and yet i used to have colleagues who do anything to avoid doing that because that for them was you know just their idea of hell i'm not saying i'm any better or worse or or that's not what i'm that's not the point i'm trying to make the point i'm trying to make is we need a wide diverse group of people with different life experience with different personalities with different strengths working collaboratively and that gives us the best possible healthcare workforce we can have yeah so obviously you've touched upon the the pressures and the, and the problems in terms of getting new blood into the system if you like i know there's um concern at the moment in terms of you know how, how we're plugging some of these gaps and recruiting from you know some poorer countries and nations i just want to get your take on that actually so i am not naive to think that we can't use overseas recruitment as part of our own recruitment strategies but i always think about some of the ethical considerations and do we really think those through that effectively what we are doing we are poaching staff sometimes from countries with far greater needs and challenges than our own and we're you know we're, we're effectively taking they've trained them we'll we'll have them now that's not to say like i am just to be clear i'm not against international recruitment but i think it has to be done in a responsible ethical manner and just to you know facilitate a brain drain on countries that sometimes are you know much poorer than ourselves that does leave a bit of a bitter taste in my mouth dom if I'm honest. But again, as I said, I'm not naive enough to think that we can't have uh, overseas recruitment. No, I, I just know it's been in the news recently about some of the recruitment that's taken place on the sort of west coast of Africa, obviously India. And like you said, th- these are countries that are facing quite a lot of um, health problems themselves. And like you said, it just feels that poaching of talent. It's not a, a, an easy problem to solve, I mean, you know, globally, there is a shortage of healthcare staff for different reasons, different circumstances. But it, you know, it it really is a, a global problem, and we need to think about how we are contributing to the solutions, but also in doing so, not make the problems any worse. Mm. Just sort of final point before before we wrap up. One of the other potential barriers could potentially be the sort of glass ceiling and and progression do you think the nhf has properly addressed that in terms of trying to 
support recruitment efforts? I'll give a relatively short answer to this, Dom, because I know time is against us. I think overall, it's better than it was. I think it's made some improvements, but I think there is still a way to go. I, I see this still quite a bit, the kind of the, the glass ceiling between members of the workforce, particularly those who work in the clinical area, uh, those who are registered with a, a, a regulator, so registered nurses, and those professionals who are not. And there's a terrible turn of phrase that is used, and it's almost in some areas just part of the vernacular when people talk about unqualified staff. Oh, I'm a, you know, how many qualified or unqualified staff do we have on duty? And I would always say we've got no unqualified staff um, because we're all qualified to undertake the duties and responsibilities of our role. Now, some roles require people to have a professional registration and a, a, be a regulated profession and others don't. But that doesn't make them unqualified. You know, we're, we're part of that team. And I think the gap between people who are would be traditionally called the support workforce and those that are not, we do need to narrow that further still and show that there are opportunities. You know, like I say, the healthcare worker of today becomes the registered nurse of in, you know, three years time. And that those people are just as valued and necessary in order to deliver care to people. So it's getting better, but I still think there's more work to be done. That's brilliant. Like you said, I think there's many more layers to this topic that we'll probably come back to in, in the coming weeks. But Andrew, that was fantastic. So thank you very much. Thanks, Tom. So all that's left for me to say is thank you very much for listening to this latest edition of Love Grove on Health. A reminder that our podcast can be found on all the major platforms, including Spotify, Amazon, Apple and Google. And that's where you can also subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also find the recordings on our Skills for Health website and social channels. Until next time, many thanks. Bye.